Welcome to the Channel Champions Podcast, powered by Evolve IP, hosted by Zach Anderson. Today, we'll explore the always evolving landscape of the IT, telephony, and communications channel. If you are a trusted advisor, strategist, IT consultant, or sales engineer, this one's for you. Today's guest is... This is the Channel Champions Podcast. This is episode 10. I'm so excited about this episode. I've got Mr. Scott Kinka, Chief Strategy Officer at Bridgepoint Technologies. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, I'm just doing a quick intro. I'd love to have you, uh, you know, give a little uh, boosted intro, if you may. Hey, no problem. Uh, well, Scott Kink, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Bridgepoint Technologies, and I'm sure we'll spend plenty of time talking about Bridgepoint Technologies and how we work with Evolve IP, you know, on the on the pod throughout the pod. So I won't spill the beans there. But um, you know, previous to being here at Bridgepoint, I was the Chief Strategy Officer, and um, and for a long period of time, the Chief Technology Officer at Evolve IP, which is super interesting to be sitting here across the table uh, from you. I was one of the founding team at Evolve IP um, and was there for 14 years, took it through, um, you know, private equity exit there. And, um, you know, as is common in these kind of scenarios, um, you know, it was time for me to, to, uh, you know, broaden my horizons and move on to the next thing. And we left it in the hands of a great management team there, you know, post, uh, you know, bringing in the private equity. Um, Previous to that, I had multiple jobs in technology. I mean, I really started actually. I have my uh, my undergraduate degree is in um, is in uh, communications, effectively. Um, you know, tra- kind of traditional communications. I graduated in the mid '90s, so um, that'll date it. But I ended up working in an ad agency, and um, you know, it was one of those like, hey, one of our customers asked us about these web pages things. Has anybody made one of those? Um, and I was like, no, uh, yes. Only I hadn't. Um, and I went home and I, I went home and I figured it out. Um, and next thing you know, that you know, there was an interactive division at our at our ad agency. Um, and um I left there to to actually pursue a graduate degree and and taught web design when it was very, very early, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the mid-90s, um, and uh, ended up at a carrier, uh ATX communications in the Northeast. Um, and it was kind of funny. I mean, at the, at the advent of the internet, nobody knew who, who you go to for your webpage design, mm-hmm. right? Because your carriers became your ISPs, your marketing companies didn't know from tech, if you get where I'm going. So mm-hmm. oftentimes they would go to their ISP to have their website design. So, um, built a web, a very large web division, 50 devs. I mean, it was a huge, you know, multi-million dollar business for us. Um, which became a big hosting business. And then the big hosting business became a big internet business, became a big managed security business. And I ended up running kind of all of managed service, everything that wasn't voice, traditional voice, if you will, right. um, for ATX. And that had been through the 2000s and the dot bomb and the whole nine yards. But ultimately, um, you know, we exited that business to Broadview Networks where I spent a little bit of time uh, before starting Evolve IP. So, uh, you know, long and storied history there, but uh, started in marketing and developed web pages. And I did my carrier tour of duty and, you know, that got me to an exit and that got me into managed services, started Evolve IP, exited that. And uh, now I'm here at Bridgepoint, which is, you know, effectively a consulting company right. across the wide range of, of uh, you know, as a service services from voice, traditional voice and network all the way through, right. you know, strategic services like unified communications and contact center. Right. Yeah, and and what's going to be interesting to get into is I've just always been so curious about you know there's there's 
a ton of different TSDs, TSBs out there today. And Bridgepoint certainly has a uh, interesting model to say the least. So I, I definitely want to dive into that for sure. Sure. Um, but I just kind of want to go through, you know, uh, just cause I'm curious again, what was it like, yeah. you know, mid nineties in the technology space? I mean, every, you know, websites were uh, certainly not as advanced as they are today. So, I mean, what, what did web yeah. design even look like in 1995? <laughs> I mean, you know, a lot of image maps, I mean, is what you would do. You know, it, it was kind of inline HTML. And then, you know, if you wanted to be super kitschy, what you would do is you'd make an image, which was sort of like the size. We were very, there was no such thing as responsive design. So you build for a browser size and you'd hope it would work. Um, and then you'd sort of build an image and you would do an image map. So you'd basically go like, if you go over to this, then that's a link to this. And if you go over this, that's a hyperlink to that. But you really couldn't construct the page with, you know, the kind of granular, uh, you know, division of images and text in the same way that you do, you know, a, a responsive design today. Mm -hmm. So it was very much, you know, you were, you were just sort of throwing it out there and hoping it would look good. Most mm -hmm. places, there was no idea about what that would look like from a mobile perspective. Right. You know, it didn't even, it didn't even occur to anybody. Um, so you did your best. I mean, most web pages were a couple of images and a lot of text. You know, if you were fancy, you would do buttons. If you were fancier, you would do buttons that had mouse servers on them. And if you were really fancy and make a giant image map for your homepage um, and, and sort of lay out where the hot links were on the image, mm -hmm. basically is what HTML looked like back then. Right. Um, so it was a lot more Photoshop. Uh, than, uh, you know, than the kind of design that you do today. And then right. ultimately, you know, it started, we started using Dream Dreamweaver and you got to get a little bit more granular, but it's nothing like, you know, the, it was a ba effectively a big client server app back in the day. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There weren't microservices. There wasn't responsive design. You weren't really writing for it as much as you were designing for it. And it was just a flat hypertext, you know, markup language, right? I mean, it was, it didn't look a whole lot different than basic scripting. Sure. You know, anything else. Pretty rudimentary. Mm -hmm. So of all the different career paths that you could have gone on with a communications degree, what had you interested the most in uh, the technology space? And I mean, especially because at the time, I mean, you talk about rudimentary, yeah. you know. I mean, I, I've always been a geek. I, I'm, you know, I, I don't mind saying that, right? I mean, I, it was, um, you know, I, my degree was in communications. So it was, you know, radio, television and film. Um, you know, production design, things like that. But to be clear, Zach, I'll completely date myself looking at a young man like you. The editing on that, literally, I was splicing tape together. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like that was audio editing back then. Sure. Um, you know, to, you know, we didn't, and then we moved towards the end of my collegiate career into do, doing it digitally. Like, and, it, and that was a completely different scenario, but you know, that was where you really get it was sort of the advent of digital editing mm -hmm. in audio and video. Um, and you know, I was already building my own PCs and already doing that kind of thing. So I started working in an ad agency and it was very much like, you know, I started at the bottom of one of the larger ad agencies in Philadelphia. It's not no longer around Earl Palmer Brown was the name of the, and I was in yellow page advertising. Can you imagine? Mm. Um, so if there's anything that's the antithesis of the internet, it's yellow page advertising, but <laughs> If you think about it early on, you know, the buyers thought of web pages like their yellow page ad, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't that it was about rich content. It was just about having a listing. Like, 
okay, I got a phone number and I have a URL. And when somebody gets to the URL, they got to be able to get my phone number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was kind of the reality of it. So it was actually sort of a natural progression. I mean, when we, um, when people started asking about us about web pages, just like a couple of years after that, they were asking their ISP to build web pages. Early on, they were asking for the company that managed their web, their yellow pages advertising to build their web page or to make sure that they were listed on AltaVista, you know, and, and Yahoo and these, you know, the early search engines that were very much like that. So it was kind of, it was actually a natural bridge. I know it sounds weird, but it was a natural bridge from yellow page advertising into building basic websites. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, I was got very tired of yellow page advertising very quickly. So I was just looking to do something else, you know, so we started playing around with it. I was also, I mean, seeing the drums behind you, I was also in a band. Um, and I'm like, I got to have a web page for my band. So we built it, you know, right. here I was in basically in college at that point, mm -hmm. you know, building web pages. So that, that was the bridge. And then kind of web attached me to a carrier and then carrier got me involved in internet. And then the rest is kind of history. And Right. You know, six, eight years later, it was founding a, you know, an, an as a service company effectively mm -hmm. after that in Evolve IP. So the first company that you were at, um, was there any connection to the channel at all? Because I know the channel has been around for a long time, but yeah. at, at the time, was was that your first iteration into the channel? It wasn't when I was doing, when I was still in, you know, working for the ad agency, right? I mean, I had a little stint in between where I did some consulting on my, when I was working on my graduate degree in teaching and I was doing consulting for as crazy as this sounds and as rudimentary as it was, I was doing consulting for Lockheed Martin and educational testing services. And, you know, I'm like 24, <laughs> right? <laughs> Writing web pages for them with government clearance, but nobody knew how to do it, right? So it was like, oh, you do web? Awesome. You must be really smart. Mm -hmm. um, no, we just, you know, I'm just a tinkerer, you know, at the end of the day. But when I ended up at um, ATX, which was a CLEC, right? A, a, a local and, and a long distance exchange carrier effectively. Um, and then burgeoning ISP is where I got my first connection into the channel. So that puts it probably 19... 98, hmm. I would say at that point. And the channel was, you know, modeled similarly, mm -hmm. right? It was the idea that, you know, some guy or gal who has connective tissue with a handful of suppliers can go get you a couple of quotes as opposed to you shopping it on your own. But to be very clear, it was a rate shopping business at the time, right? Like right. who can cover my locations and what will they give me based on my volume? for long distance and local. Um, and then, you know, and then it was less about shopping internet and more about actually being able to buy it because people were researching, you know, what's dial up? Can I get dedicated connectivity, you know, at a T1 level, right? Mm. Uh, 1.5 megabits per second. So yeah. fast. Um, but, uh, you know, still in that same model of independent brokerage, right? Mm. I can do better for you than you can do on your own. And then, you know, if the supplier trips up, I'm here to help. Uh, so that, but that, I would say 97, 98 would have been my first connection to the channel. And what was it like back then? <laughs> I mean, it was a wild, wild west, right? Sure. I mean, the channel, <clears throat> the channel really popped out of, you know, in my mind, and people would tell this story very differently, but it really came out of the vestiture. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is the breakup of the bells, um, and first it was long distance and then ultimately in their, you know, early nineties, uh, to mid nineties became local. Mm -hmm. Um, but in those cases, you know, these giant sales forces, um, and the bell businesses were no longer monopolies. So in many cases they sort of, you know, they 
decided they were going to shed salespeople, right? <clears throat> Those salespeople were the ones with the relationships and it was a very wise business model. I mean, it, it sparked out of, you know, everybody that you talked to in the channel at that time, you, you know, their answer was what carrier did they work for? Right. Whether it was, you know, pre, three years prior or four years prior, mm -hmm. um, whether it was one of the local phone companies or one of the big long distance carriers is where their legacy was. Um, and it was just a really interesting time because it was, um, you know, establishing sort of, is this primarily just a sales job or is this a consulting job? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it, it started as a sales job, you know, and I can go get you a couple of prices, you know, let me, the, it was, let me go ask my manager of selling if you get where I'm going kind of model. Yep. But very quickly became, you know, these partners became the experts in this nitty stuff that mattered a lot from a pricing perspective, right? Rate centers and, you know, uh, whether the billing was broken down inside of a minute. I know this stuff sounds probably crazy, Zach, but I mean, like, <laughs> like that was, there was the kind of reasons why, um, you know, and of course, shopping price and knowing the carriers where, you know, independent agents, you know, or brokers started really adding value to that selling on what feels like a really rudimentary kind of, you know, minute based product, but knowing how to buy it, how to implement it, how it was available, how you could deploy it in large and small scenarios, how you could break it down sub minute if that mattered in the kind of business you were in, you know, just gaining knowledge in the, you know, small iterations of a product that then make its delivery valuable to the end customer. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was absolutely the wild, wild west, you know, you, you had, and you have a little bit of it today, you know, you have the price driven consultants and then you have the consulting driven consultant consultants, right. And they, and all great models. It just depends on where their focus is and where their product expertise is. Sure. What was the first channel event that you went to? Oh man, <laughs> I, I have to think back for us at ATX at the time, it was, we ran a lot of our own events and okay. ATX was a kind of a super regional carrier. So it was, you know, figure it sort of New York city through DC out through Pittsburgh and a mid Atlantic with a little bit of a westward tranche. And then eventually uh, merged with a company called Corecom and, and got some Midwest assets largely in the Ohio Valley. Um, so we would run a lot of our own. It had to have been something like Philadelphia Alliance of Capital and Technologies or, um, you know, something along those lines where it was a mix of business people, you know, and agents, brokers and sort of suppliers at it. Mm -hmm. But we were driving a lot of those events at that time um, directly towards end customers and then working with the agents to sort of fund it and mm -hmm. be there to help us cover the room kind of thing. What was so that? I think that would be it. Probably Philadelphia Alliance of Capital and Technology, which is still around as an affinity right. group, not agent related, but you know, that would be when I sort of first really got my engagement at those types of events. What was the first TSD event that you went to? Who, um, probably towards the end of that, um, it would have been my first, a channel partners probably okay. in the mid two thousands. Wow. Um, you know, being early to mid 2000s channel partners. And then channel partners really became a thing for us at Evolve IP where we had done so much of our distribution through, you know, agents. Previously, when we started Evolve IP, we're like, that's going to be our primary route to market. And as a service, is going to be our primary way of going to market, right? Mm -hmm. We weren't going to worry about circuits. We weren't going to be in that business. We were going to be in the business of providing over the top services and we were going to do it through partners. Mm -hmm. um, so then, it, you know, by then it was, 
year and it was IntelliSys Channel Connect. And then a year after that, it was Avant Special Forces. And then a year after, so, you know, probably got, I don't know, 10 to 15 years of, <laughs> maybe 15 years of, cha of uh, channel partners and probably 12 years of IntelliSys Channel Connect and, you know, maybe eight years of Avant Special Forces and then, you know, dribble on through the rest to Laris and, you know, and the rest of them. So, um, yeah, a lot of that. When did you know that this thing we call the channel was a viable sort of go-to-market strategy? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, because look, we as channel, I mean, you know, now I'm on the channel side, right? I mean, right. we don't, we're not a TSB in the way you would think of traditionally as a TSB, but we, you know, functionally operate in a similar fashion where we've got arrangements with suppliers and we've got, consultants that work, you know, for us in our world, they dedicate them, you know, they are bridge point uh, consultants, but, you know, and, and they're doing the brokerage and relationship building and all of those things. So it works very similarly and the money flows in a similar fashion, although we consider ourselves a consultancy as opposed to a, you know, a, a TSD, which sort of is operationally focused to support field sellers. Our field sellers are part of our organization, but, um, you know, the, reality of it is this model, the model that I'm in today. Um, you know, if we, had, if we're honest with ourselves, it comes with some hair too for the suppliers, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, you've got to fund efforts like this, like we're going through right now, you've got to fund, um, engagement and events that, you know, it is a sponsorship related business in the same way that distribution arrangements are between the big disties and the Microsoft's and HP's and Cisco's of the world. Right. Um, it it carries a residual commission, which, you know, if you think about it, it's like, you know, you pay, if you're on the supplier side, you're like, I got to pay this person forever, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> in this model where in a direct business model there, you know, you've got, that's what you're comparing it to. You're saying basically, all right, well, my direct sales people are going to go out and sell to uh, an end customer. I will pay them a commission, but it's oftentimes not a residual commission at that level for in perpetuity, right? Um, so long-term, it's less expensive after you've sold the account, right? Right. On the direct side. Uh, but there's massive startup costs in direct, um, for the suppliers, right? They've got to hire people. Some of those people are going to wash out. You're paying them when they're productive or they're not productive, mm -hmm. right? Where in the channel model, you know, you're only paying people who are productive, right? If they produce something, you pay them. Yes, you pay more, but you never, you didn't pay them anything for their failures. You only pay them something for their successes, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I would say for me, at it was really pre-evolve IP and at, you know, the carrier that I was at, ATX and then Broadview, where we were really working heavily with partners as, as an also strategy, not the only strategy, mm -hmm. right? And you, because you've got this one, you know, buildup of, of revenue that costs you a whole lot up front, but you pay less for on the back end. Right. Right. That's the direct side. And then you've got sort of the indirect side where you've got your cost of be, you know, cost of playing ball effectively, mm -hmm. go to the events, be the sponsor, whatever. But then you're really only paying for production, but you're paying more for production because right. you are paying over time. Right. So for me at the supplier side, I was always interested in a, in a mix of those models, right? You, and you want to be able to show that you can generate revenue directly. You want to be able to show that you can generate indirectly. Mm -hmm. Now I'm an indirect partner. I'm, you know, I'm the chief strategy officer at a consultancy that we don't make anything on our, you know, we're not a producer of a product, right? right? We're a producer of 
advice mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day. Right. Um, and we are paid that way, but we, you know, look, we have to appreciate that we are part of that ecosystem that includes the suppliers, direct sales forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was never a time when we went, when we had started Evolve IP where we were, we were not like, we have to distribute through channel. Mm. I mean, depending on the ownership structure and what's going on over the course of a couple of decades, the reliance moved, you know, back and forth. And obviously you would be much more in a position to speak to Evolve IP's position on that now. I mean, obviously we're having this podcast, so there's, you know, Evolve IP is certainly super interested in, you know, driving, you know, much of its revenue through the channel. And, and, you know, I understand certainly how much of the base has come from that. Right. Um, but I would say it was sort of at the end of that carrier time. And then we came into, into Evolve IP, it was always, you know, at least a 50, 50 portion of what it is that we were doing. And in the latter years of my time there, it was more of certainly more of my focus mm-hmm. was doing it through the channel. And then the other consideration is that. You can get scale quickly as a service provider with channel, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of, I don't want to say that's an ad cash and stir kind of model because you've got to be successful at it. You have to know how to work with partners. But the point is you can decide how many of the distributors you and, and channel partners you want to invest in. You can decide how many channel managers you want to throw at it, how many relationships you want to build. And then you're only paying for the success that you generate. So it takes a lot longer to build up a successful direct sales force than it is to begin generating revenue if you've got a good salient value proposition, mm-hmm. you know, in the channel. Right. So from when you started, what was your, this is kind of a two-parter. So what was your yeah. why at the time when you first started, when you first got into the channel and you saw all this opportunity and what was your vision at the time for where you might want to go with your career? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, when we, let's just take sort of the time when, you know, I, I grew up in a carrier, but that really wasn't where I was making decisions for myself from a career perspective. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're just sort of weaving through it and opportunistically looking to sure. drive your way through, you know, the, the real moment when I, when I got to sit down and sort of stare at, in the mirror right, and at my wife, um, and say, what do you, what do I want to do was, was really when we, when we, you know, found it Evolve IP, mm. um, with a, with a great group and, you know, we're engaged with, um, you know, some investors who had already sort of begun the, you know, strategically planning it and folks that I had known from my previous life and, you know, sort of got in and we built the business plan together. And, but, you know, that was the moment at which I said a, a couple of things. One is, um, for me, I didn't want to be in the infrastructure business in terms of network, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there are lots of great companies who do that, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the people with the wires and the ground control the story there, right? So it's, you can make money around it, providing money services around it, being good at brokering it. You know, there's, there's great carriers who are, you know, sort of brokers of other people's stuff, if you will, that you put under one umbrella. But that was never really our push. We wanted, you know, evolve to be an as a service company, mm-hmm. you know, from the, from the beginning. And, and, you know, cloud wasn't even a word that was used when we started that thing. Right. Um, and then the other decision we made was that, you know, yeah, we weren't going to just try and build this gigantic national sales force. We were going to build, you know, a sort of regional direct force and then leverage the channel to do the rest of it. Um, um, and that was really where, you know, I sort of embraced not only that, but then sort of the role as a field focused CTO, mm-hmm. right? Which when you want to grow through channel, it's, you know, for a channel partners as a supplier, you know, you're evaluated on your ability to make them look good. 
mm-hmm. right in the field. I mean, that's what that really boils down to. So I, you know, while I had my day job as the CTO of the company, um, you know, much of my time and in some time, some periods of time, as much as 50% of my time was spent, you know, on the road with partners, educating them that there was a different way for their customers to buy other stuff, right? They were already brokering telecom and they were already brokering connectivity and they were going, Hey, remember that PBX that they bought <laughs> that you had to deal with interconnecting your carrier with when you sold the carrier? Well, there's another way to buy that. So go educate them on this financial model, which at the time we called hosted PBX today, you know, falls under UCAS, right? right. And you remember that monolithic contact center that they bought as attached to the Avi or attached to the Cisco call manager. Hey, there's another way to buy that. And then of course that eventually branched into servers and became, you know, hosting and became eventually became cloud and hyperscale, you know, that branched over into end user computing, which became the DAS market. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really, we, we started thinking telco and telco became, you know, CCAS, you know, thinking PBX, I should say, PBX became CCAS, CCAS became computing, computing became, you know, desktop as a service, desktop as a service became security and it became this, you know, how far can you go? Uh, in terms of relieving IT people from the also jobs right. in their day to day. Right. So I'm curious when you were beginning to start Evolve IP, obviously you were affiliated with the channel. So I'm curious to know did you ever consider starting an agency as opposed to a supplier or an MSP? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, I considered it a multiple times throughout my career, but I think from my perspective, I w- I've always been a builder doer, I think is the reality of it. Um, and, you know, I had just seen the, I saw the opportunity at that point um, mm. to do that. Now there were multiple times when I've had partners reach out to me. There have been multiple times when I've been through that process. Um, but yeah, you know, I also, frankly, didn't expect to be 14 years in a company that I founded too, sure. right? Yeah. So okay. like life, life is the thing that happens while you're making plans uh, yeah. sort of at the end of the day. I didn't know that when, I, by the time I, um, you know, when it was time for me to, to retire from Evolve IP and leave it in the hands of the, you know, the management team that's there now, um, the you know, that I wanted to then, I wasn't going back into building, you know, and turning wrenches, right? Mm-hmm. I spent enough time in the channel that I knew that that was where I wanted to land. So I, I think it's not the direct answer to your question, Zach, but I think the actual answer to the question is that when, you know, when I retired from the business that we found, that a group of us worked together as founding partners to create, um, after a whole hell of a lot longer being there than I expected to be, um, I definitely had made the decision at that point that it was going to be channel for me. Hmm. And how has the, um, how has the sort of agent model changed since, you know, the time you started to now, have you seen a big difference or is it kind of the same or what do you think? Um, you know, that's really interesting. I think that a, you know, that model has grown up with the technology, mm-hmm. I think is a lot is the way I would look at it. Meaning, you know, all of these sort of strategic, sexy things that you do with tech were sort of the domain of the distributor and the VAR, right? You sold a, 
at Interconnect sold a PBX or a contact center. You know, a VAR sold a server or a piece of software. They mm-hmm. all got that stuff from distributors who had relationships with the big names that you, you know, you already know. Mm-hmm. And the agents, you know, theirs was the do- theirs was the domain of AT and T, Verizon, you know, Comcast. You know, back in the day, I could mention a million names that have gone away since then too, right? Global Crossing and Level Three and you know who are now all now Lumen and, but you know that was their domain where the VARs had the domain of sort of the box. Mm-hmm. whether that be software or gear you're pulling out of the box. Um, so when I, in answer to your question about, about how it's changed, um, I think it's moved as, you know, those things that used to buy in a box became as a service, right? And, and you know, agents were, and brokers and partners were already comfortable with the idea that they were selling an MRR solution, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I would say over the last decade, there's been a little bit of this kind of, you know, confluence of, you know, an agent moving towards strategic services that are now MRR based, right? Mm-hmm. UCAS to CCAS to servers and, you know, to, to infrastructure as a service to maybe desktop as a service to others. And then the VARs are coming the other way and going, all right, well, these things that I already did, I can sell as a MRR and they begin acting like agents or partnering with agents, you know what I mean? To come the opposite direction. Um, so th- that's really how I've seen it grow up. I think everybody, both the VARs and, you know, what you would consider to be more of more of a more traditional, you know, telco or, or connectivity internet style of agent have come to the middle. And when they've done that, they've really had to focus, begin focusing on business outcomes as opposed to focusing on price outcomes, mm-hmm. you know, or price savings, let's say, you know, the, the VAR was always selling something that cost money. The agent was always selling something that saved money. I mean, generally speaking, right. In a lot of ways, when they came together and the services all became MRR, you know, became, you know, became uh utility, if you will. Right. Let's face mm-hmm. it. Phones are utility at this point, not right. a thing you spend money on. Sure. Um, when they both came towards the middle, you know, it wasn't so much as like, yeah, sure, I can still go and and help you figure out whether you're going to go with this UCAS provider or that UCAS provider. And because I know them, I can help you save a couple of bucks over you being able to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. The, that's not how our conversations start, though, now, right? Our conversations start from a what are you trying to accomplish from a place of what are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Right. What's what are the initiatives in your business? Right. It's to save money, get scale, grow internationally, you know, improve customer outcomes, sell more, whatever those things are. Intrinsically now, there's a, you know, it's not all technology. I mean, there's people and process and all the other things in there, but you know, there intrinsically there's a technology component. So that's to me been the maturing. You know, I go to these partner events now, you know, being a partner myself, right? And right. we come together and we see the suppliers give their talks and we, you know, we do the whole nine nine yards. And, you know, we've matured to the point, I think, as an industry where we're going in and solving actual issues sure. is really what it boils down to, as opposed to trying to save a couple of bucks. Yeah. So how did your time as a founder of a company obviously evolve ip but how has that sort of helped you in your transition to bridgepoint wow that's a good one um 
Well, I think, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, Bridgepoint was, uh, you know, is private equity owned. Mm. Uh, so I'll start at the real high level, the nerdy economic level, right? Bridgepoint <laughs> private equity owned. I got some experience with that at Evolve IP. I had some experience with that, you know, at, at, um, ATX and Broadview. So that, I mean, and that, that's one, I think it certainly gave me the, you know, more experience in, you know, working with a financial sponsor to grow a business, right? Mm -hmm. That's one, I think, you know, two, it gave me, you know, perspective on scale. I think that was, you know, the most, the most interesting thing about growing a company, the way that we did Evolve IP that I think helped prep me for my current role, mm -hmm. right? Is that, you know, it, Agency businesses, partner businesses, strategist businesses, trusted advisors, whatever the, you know, what you get at the brokerage model is largely a hugs and handshakes business. Mm -hmm. And I mean that, by the way, affectionately, not, you know, you know, not the opposite, right? I mean, these companies have built incredible businesses through networking, mm -hmm. but, you know, the, but building operational back office and marketing the business at scale. And things of that nature are things that, you know, that are not generally in the bailiwick of the average partner in the street. Um, and if they have figured out how to do it, it's because they've spent a lot of money and made the mistakes, you know, that, that I have, right? And, mm -hmm. and others like me have. Um, so I think bringing some of that is one of the reasons why I'm at Bridgepoint. I mean, you know, Bridgepoint was acquired by private equity and, um, you know, and was, you know, as, as plans to grow, obviously, um, but you need to grow in a different way mm -hmm. right similarly to the way that we did with evolve ap after it was acquired by private equity you know we tripled the size of the company in a couple of years there's an expectation when you bring in a financial sponsor that you're pouring gasoline on the thing <laughs> you know what i mean which we did right and and frankly you know did a lot of great work and made mistakes also i mean you know it's um you know not here to say we did everything right um but but i think those are all learning experiences learning experiences for the business and learning experiences you know, in, in my case for the individual to take into the next one. So I think that's it. You know, it's, it's how do you take a hugs and handshakes business and turn it into a business that has some scale in it in marketing and operations and things of that nature. I think certainly in terms of, um, you know, knowing and understanding how to leverage a financial sponsor and give them what they need while we're getting what we need. Um, and then of course, certainly, um, you know, building, we built in a lot of ways, built Evolve IP through the channel. Right. Um, which that in and of itself is probably the most important experience that sort of prepped me for being on this side. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways we, you know, it's funny. I feel like I spent similar education time. It used to be that I would spend time at the supplier educating partners on how to think differently about their customer interactions. Today, I feel like I spend a lot of my time, you know, I have our suppliers as part of my responsibility. I spend a lot of time trying to educate them on, you know, what makes them valuable to the seller, right? Mm -hmm. To the consultant in the field, you know, in a lot of ways. And, um, and a lot of it has to do with that business outcomes conversation we're having. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I can think back to our last, you know, we have our, um, our annual tech summit in, in the September, October timeframe. And mm. this last year was the first year that I sort of ran it and emceed it into the whole nine yards. And we had an interesting thing where, you know, as opposed to doing these, Hey, let's get all the UCAS vendors up and let everybody, you know, compare feature sheets. Like, we, we didn't do that. We had discussions like, you know, business outcome focused discussions, kind of what we were talking about, you know, what's the role of the CIO and how's it changed? 
um, things like that. You know, what really is hybrid work and do we know what it is right now? And sure, of course, there's going to be some discussion about how our products fit in, but it was largely about where customers are along the continuum. But to make sure all the suppliers got their commercial, we said, hey, well, you're going to get five minutes. Sure. You're going to get up and here's the format, right? So we'll do a nice talk and then three suppliers get up and tell them about ourselves because they want that access. And, you know, of course you need that access. And, you know, so many of them start with, you know, hey, and we have this great thing and the thing is this and, and microservices and hyperscale and how many words can I put together? Um, and, you know, I get out there and say, hey, listen, I appreciate all that, but these partners don't care, right? <laughs> the partners care. What's the business outcome that you deliver? What's your superpower? Right. Right. At the end of the day, what's the superpower? Because we've got, you know, a, for us, 150 to 200 suppliers that we pull from. And right. you don't want to have to micro categorize everybody, but you know, you do have to have a library card catalog at the end of the day, right? You know, you take a note, you write it in the book, you close the book, you put it up on the shelf and you go, I'm going to pull that book down when I want to read that chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, so you do have to, you do have to hone your story down. Um, which has been really, really interesting coming from a supplier. Let's face it. I mean, Evolve IP's strength in a lot of ways, um, while it is a DAS driven story today has been that you are a DAS provider who knows how to do voice and plays nicely with teams and has a UCAS legacy and has a context under that plays nicely with the UCAS platform. And, you know, your best customers, not to give the Evolve IP commercial, but your best customers are the ones who buy multiple things from you sure. because they see the most, not that each one is not in and of itself a highly val val valuable product. It is, right? Mm -hmm. But the ones who become the zealots, you know what I mean, for telling the Evolve AP story are the ones who are buying across the aisle, yep. right, in multiple products. That's also a hard story to tell to a partner who wants to stick you in a book and stick you on the shelf in the DAS section. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So, um, but so it's given me interesting perspective. You know, I feel like on both sides to hopefully be able to educate both the supplier and the seller because at the end of the day, we all make money when we perform a job for a customer mm -hmm. who sees value. Mm -hmm. So how are you, I say you uh, broadly, Bridgepoint, how do, you, how do you help your strategists navigate all the different technologies that are out there today um, in yeah. addition to navigate the supplier space? I mean, like you said, you're pulling from a supplier pool of, 200, right? So how are you enabling them to, to, to make the right decisions for the customers? You know, from our perspective, it's a commitment to, to being a technology consultancy, mm -hmm. right? I think, and this, this is going to sound maybe overly competitive and I don't mean it to be in that nature, but I mean, I think there's one thing when you're, there's, there's one set of responsibilities around being a traditional TSD, mm -hmm. which I've already said we're not. So it's not, I'm not trying to compare, but like a traditional TSD is in the business, is in an administrative business of providing support, certainly, mm -hmm. but, you know, signing contracts and making sure, ensuring that there are, you know, that, that the end agents are getting the best deal as opposed to the agent negotiating those deals directly. And they're in the commissions business and they're in the commission support business and they're in certainly in the business of educating and they're in the business of providing, you know, um, coverage for escalations and all of those things. Like mm -hmm. that's the very, and the, all of the TSDs have broadened to come more towards a little bit more of a consultative strategic stance. From Bridgepoint's perspective, we are consultants, right? I mean, yes, we have to do that stuff. We're not trying to support thousands of sellers. We're supporting hundreds of people who sell for, who sell for 
and as a part of Bridgepoint, mm-hmm. right? So we are back office on that sort of contract management and commissions. And, you know, it's very different in terms of size and scope. From our perspective, we consider ourselves a consultancy. We've got 50 people, 50 people who we bill out for CX mm. consulting, right? You guys are in the C- CCAS business. You know, when a customer goes bad, it's not because the technology is broken largely. It's because the customer needs help getting it in. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they'll make the decision to go get a new platform because they're blaming the tech. But the reality of it is maybe they don't have the right supervisors or the right strategy or the right, you know, training or the right. So we've got 50 people that just do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've got 50 people, 40 to 50 people in the organization that just do telecom expense management on network because frankly, taxes and tariffs and mm-hmm. USF and all that nonsense is, it is nonsense. But it's stuff that can add 25% to the bill, sure. right? At the end of the day, if it's not done appropriately. So for us, you know, much more of the construction of our business than I would say your traditional TSB is based around delivering uh, consultative services that bridge the gap between where the seller in the field ends and where the service provider like yourself begins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't deploy DAS to a customer whose AD is a mess. Mm. I mean, you can't, right? You can't deploy a CCAS solution to a customer who is, you know, and have them be successful if they were already understaffed, mm-hmm. overstaffed, undertrained. You know, you get the idea. So, you know, for us, it's really about that. You know, our ratio of sellers to engineers they can take in the field is like four to one in mm-hmm. our company, mm-hmm. right? So that's really how. You know, a one we're differentiating into why we consider ourselves consultancy. I mean, we, you know, even though we help customers get to the end agreements, we consider ourselves much more a competitor, you know, to an Accenture or a McKinsey than we do to a master agency. Interesting. Do you ever feel as if like, because it sounds like you have a very specific set of call it engineers or consultants in Bridgepoint that focus on CX or UC or, you know, name, name the uh, technology set or solution set. Do you ever find that it's difficult or that it sort of silos off the conversations with the end user? Meaning like if Mm -hmm. you're having a, a CX conversation with a customer, call it, you know, CCAS and, you know, the, uh, adjacent solutions that come along with that. How do you ever, I mean, do you, do you worry about missing opportunities, um, for other solutions that could potentially help that customer as well? And obviously I'm asking this because like you said, of all IP cells, um, you know, a lot of complimentary services, but like, yeah, what's the, what's the, the tactic there or the, or, you know, to, to mitigate that risk? Well, let me answer the first question was, do you worry about it? And the answer is yes. Okay. Um, in the same way that you that you would sure. on the supplier side, you know, being a supplier who strategically sells sort of a, a broad portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, that's always that, you know, in our world, my belief, and we've run some numbers on this, you know, is that from a first customer conversation to the time that they're able to buy something from you, mm-hmm. meaning have a need, have a service that's coming out of term, mm-hmm. you know, what is something like six to seven months. Mm. Right. Um, so you definitely have to balance, you know, the, the opportunistic, let's just say, may not make an adjective, the opportunity in front of you mm-hmm. now that you can execute on to begin a relationship with a client. Sure. 
and you know trying to solve all of their problems at one time. Mm-hmm. I have always been a big proponent of the land and expand, sure. right? I think you, you know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time, mm-hmm. whether you are the supplier, like a Volvo IP who wants to get across the aisle, whether you're the, you know, the, the consultant like Bridgepoint, who obviously has a cadre of, of all IPs that we can work with to get even broader across the aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, or even if you're the customer, you know, if you're if you're the new CIO in a business, you've got to eat the elephant, you know, one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 because so many of the things that we do in technology are term based, you're never in a position to get it all in one shot anyway. Or or let's just say very rarely. So in our world, I think there's a couple of things. Yeah, you you unquestionably we can get siloed because our experts are generally experts in in one thing, right? Mm-hmm. We balance that by the fact that our strategists, our agents, and at least in the model that you're thinking about, are the ones who are the generalists, right? Right. Their job is not, yes, there are many of them are very deep technically, but their job is not to sell the feckins and beckons, right? Their job is to map the customer's business outcome need, the conversation we were having earlier, and then making sure that they bring in the appropriate experts to address that need opportunistically when that time is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll go get the rest. So that's one. The other thing that we do is, you know, with the partners that are part of our equity partnership, you know, they're, you know, they're getting account management from us so that we're just in a constant dialogue with the customers to make sure that, um, you know, we're in a good position to get the next one. But, mm-hmm. you know, timing is the biggest impediment. Time is the biggest impediment to buying mm-hmm. by the customer. And timing is the biggest impediment for the suppliers and the consultancies and the strategists towards being able to sell something. And mm-hmm. you, you know, a lot of things have to align, right? right? Their time and your timing have to align to each other. So, you know, you take the thing you can get, you establish yourself as an expert, you provide value, you deliver on a business outcome, you ensure they know the other things that you do. And you keep in constant contact with them so that they believe you're the, you know, they think to you the next time there's a problem mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed inside the business. Yep. And, yeah. and that, you know, that relationship that you build uh, along the way will open up the opportunities down the road for the next solution, which I, I think that's, that's smart. So with, you know, security being so popular right now and yeah. CX being so popular, do you feel like, strategists, agents, um, get too focused on what's popular. I mean, you know, you look at how technology has grown over the last, you know, just call it the time that, that you've been involved in the technology space, but you know, there's, there's always this for any sales organization, you want to sell what's popular and what the market is demanding. So how do you, okay, let me, let me back up. Do you think that there are missed opportunities when strategists or agents, you know, only focus on what's popular? And if so, how do you keep them sort of, you know, how do you keep the bigger picture in their mind? Yeah. So the answer is yes. I think we all fall into that trap, not just the partners, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in the era of, you know, SEO and social, you know, echo chamber, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I mean, I don't mind even taking a shot at us. We're, we're trying to jump all over. T- so, you know, it's now June. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but if you go back over, you know, Bridgepoint's social over the last 60 days, you'll see it's very AI dominated. It's very yep. BPO and CX dominated. So 
because, you know, look, you, you can either fight the machine or you can, you know, be part of the machine. Unfortunately, you know, we all understand the concept of topics being amplified on social and, and, and in SEO. So that's mm-hmm. the one thing. Um, you know, I also think as technologists, you are clearly dealing with a buyer. And I stress this to buyers all the time. So if we do happen to have somebody who's hung with us this long, who is not a partner, but is actually a CIO or somebody on the buyer side, you know, the, on the customer side of the house, um, we get enamored with shiny balls. Mm. We are technologists. Let's just call it what it is. We are at our core engineer tinkerers, right? Mm. So every single person listening to this podcast, you know, watched the release of the Apple, you know, <laughs> VR, AR headset three days ago. Yep. Right. It's just what we do. You're And you're only laughing because I know you watched it. Right. So like, but we get enamored with shiny balls and it does have to be something that we're super disciplined about ensuring, you know, in the field that, we're not talking about the shiny ball. The way Zach to combat that is not to say, is not to focus on which of the shiny balls is popular today, but to go back to business fundamentals and make it about the business outcomes. And sometimes the business outcomes, not sexy. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? So mm. listen, it's never going to be more interesting to talk about network than it is to talk about security. Let's just be honest. Like in all the, we've got a bunch of network providers. We laugh about it. Like it is what, frankly, all the network providers are trying to make their SD-WAN products be security products. And they're, you know, trying to move towards a unified stance around SASE and all those things. And they do make it more sexy. And that's real. It's not that it's not real, but the reality of it is there's going to be things that we're talking about that are sexy. And there's going to be things that we're talking about that are not sexy. But at the end of the day, you know, I'll tell you what is sexy, profit. Hmm. I can tell you what is sexy revenue, mm-hmm. right? And the opportunities both for the partners and I think more importantly for the customers exist in those categories. And that's why I think, you know, the starting from the position of the customer is the key to the channel continuing to evolve. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't let the customer make it about shiny balls if we don't make it about shiny balls. We have to make it about the customer. Don't be somebody who sells security, right? Be somebody who delivers a secure means for people to work from home so that the company can attract employees, drive revenue and reduce costs. That's a business outcome. So yeah, security is attached to that, but don't let that be the lead, mm-hmm. right? Be somebody who helps companies reduce costs. Be somebody who, who helps companies increase revenue, be somebody who helps customers, you know, increase CX so that the phone gets answered quicker and they sell more. Be somebody. That's the real key is for the suppliers and for the partners. Stop talking about shiny balls and the, you know, talk about the benefits of shiny balls, you mm-hmm. know, make it about delivering outcomes and you won't get stuck into security. You might mm-hmm. land on security. Yep. Sure. And everybody wants to talk about it right now for a whole host of reasons that are legit reasons, right? Everybody wants to talk about AI for a whole host of reasons that are legit. But at the end of the day, if it's not driving something towards the business that hits the balance sheet, right? That hits, right? That hits, you know, the budget, then who cares? It's just tech at the end of the day. So besides um, CX, AI, and security, do you think there are any opportunities or any trends that 
aren't getting enough attention? It's a really good point. I think we're so tired of talking about the pandemic. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That we are not talking about hybrid work. Mm. Um, that's a big one. It's also come up on, on, um, you know, my podcast uh, a handful of times in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what I mean by that is business still hasn't figured it out. Mm. Right. I mean, you know, we see the news, you know, company told everybody to come back and everybody quit or, you know, yep. company did this, you know, depends on who's got an agenda that's pushing the story one way or the other. It's either an employee led, you know, you're coming back to the office or it's a, um, you know, employee led, I'm not coming back to the office, depending on the bent of the periodical or who's writing the article. But the reality of it is you can build IT for a hybrid work stance that's not defined in the executive suite. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're building a stance that is both 100% in office and 100% hybrid or 100% mm-hmm. in out of the office, right? right? So if I'm thinking about Zach, you know, I'm thinking about Evolve's technologies. You guys drive from a position of DAS, you know, with integrated contact center, whether it's yours or somebody else's. And, mm-hmm. you know, providing voice on top of teams where you know everybody already is, you know, and or WebEx where you know you know, everybody already is, et cetera, right? That, that's the story that you guys go and tell out there. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is the value proposition of each of those things is very different if people are 100% remote, 100% in the office or part-time, right? Or let's just say this, very different if everybody's in the office on the same days. Mm-hmm. Now the network stance is different. The bandwidth requirements are different. So that was a really lengthy answer to a short question, but I think that I think we can allow people to move past the pandemic and maybe we don't, you know, let's not talk, let's not talk pandemic anymore. Well, let's just call it hybrid work. Mm-hmm. We have to keep having the conversation because it really, to be honest with you, st- affects the other topics. It affects security. It affects CX. It affects whether AI can be valuable or not. Where do people live? Right. Or where do people work? I should say, right. Mm -hmm. Where are they? When are they? And what's the business's stance going to be related to that? Are you attracting talent from anywhere? Are you trying to keep them near your centers and give, just giving them some flexibility? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? That affects your endpoint stance, which affects your security stance, which affects your collaboration stance, which affects your CX stance, which defines how much you think you need to get out of a tech technology like AI. Right. I would drill it down to where are your people and where you expect them to be. We have to keep having that conversation. Everything else in my mind is an after effect of that. You know, I don't know how you build a compliance stance <laughs> around I'm not sure where my humans are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it all ultimately comes down to the future of work and, and what is hybrid today. So that to me is the topic. I think it's a macro level topic. We're down, we're probably one level down to still having to get final answers around that or forcing ourselves to have at least a discussion about it. Right. And do you, so with your um, interactions with, you know, the strategists, you know, sort of, um, you know, to the customer, how, how are they having those conversations? I mean, are, are the strategists trying to convince the end users or I'm sorry, the customers one way or another, like, or are they trying to, you know, just educate them on the opportunities? I think it's a matter of educating on the opportunities or 
even, uh, you know, let me state it slightly differently, even more just challenging them Mm. to come to a conclusion, right? It's that like, I can't build for, I don't know. That's the CIO play. Like if I, when I'm with a group of CIOs, if I'm doing, if I'm giving a talk, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago on AI mm-hmm. and I started, um, I started with the hybrid work question and you're like, why are you starting with this? And I gave that exact same story about like, cause we're going to end it where AI can be valuable. Once you tell me what your hybrid work stance is. So I start with, you know, how many in here are, are technology leaders and most of them because I knew what the group was. And the second one was how many of you have been told by your C- CEO? or your head of HR definitively what your return to work plans are. Mm. And like a quarter of the people raised their hand, <laughs> you know? Um, now it ended, be, it ended up that most of them just said they're resigned to the fact, right? Sure. They're resigned to the fact that it's going to be hybrid. So they're just trying to build for a hundred percent, hundred percent. But the reality of it is if you, you know, if you do that, there is waste there. You know, if 100% of people have to come back to the office and it's the same day, that's a very different story. Yeah. 100% of the people have to report to the office one day a week and it's at their choice. Think mm-hmm. about that, right? But it does, at the you know, the whole concept of the network versus the user breaks down in there at what level you want to put your security stance, you know, right? Sexy topic of the day. But mm-hmm. all of that is still based on where, you know, people are working. Mm. It's such an interesting thing. I mean... You know, we talk all the time, you know, obviously, you know, Kevin Sullivan, but we don't ever want to sell from a position of fear. And when we're talking about, you know, positioning this hybrid work idea, I think a lot of leaders, IT leaders, CEOs, C-levels, whomever, they, you know, they don't want to be like, well, you know, I'm not scared that we're going to go through a pandemic again. So I'm just going to have everybody, you know, come back to the office and whatever, but it's really not that's really not what the pandemic taught us. The pandemic taught us work, you know, employees are more valuable and less expendable than you think, specifically I, your IT staff, right? Oh, absolutely. And isn't it? God, I'm sorry, please. Well, it's just, it's just so interesting. Like when you look at, you know, this, this p- potential of reducing IT spend and like, you know, how, you know, what are they are they a profit center? Are they a cost center? It's just this idea of like how valuable employees are and, you know, how to look to them for what they actually want out of an employer is just so interesting. And I, and I think that really has been one of the biggest lessons out of this whole thing. And, you know, when you talk to groups like that and, and they don't see that, I just think it's sort of a, a missed opportunity that, um, I wish they would take advantage of some of these, you know, solutions and for the betterment of their uh, longevity of their employees. I don't know. It's just interesting. No. Well, I think there's two, there's two things on there that I find super interesting. One is, isn't it funny as we're sitting here in one breath talking about how, how AI is going to take people's jobs, the LinkedIn post directly underneath that is about the employee never being more important, mm. right? It's just an odd juxtaposition right mm-hmm. now, right? Mm-hmm. I, I that's, you know, that's certainly one way of looking at the end of the day, somebody has to inform AI. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I find that to be really, really sort of a, a super interesting tug of war that's going on in the way we're thinking about the way that we work right now. You know, people have never been more important in our businesses, but we're now totally in fear that AI is going to outsource everything that we just learned about ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I had something else in there. I think it, it, it escaped me at that moment, but I mean, it definitely is an interesting parallel. <laughs> um, you know, when you get out in front of it decision makers to have the people conversation first. Oh, I, I know what it was. I think the other one is that it's, um, it's very much a part of Evolve IP's story. I mean, I don't know, you know, you, you guys talk about people-centered IT. I think I've seen those words, you know, those words splashed around on your website. I've heard Gary Coben give the speech, mm-hmm. you know. I'm pretty sure I might have, you know, written some stuff on that before I, you know, before I retired. Um, but the idea is that the network is still there, but the intrinsic nature of people in shiny buildings doesn't really, I mean, you need to, you need to create an IT stance at the people level, mm-hmm. not at the network level. Um, the network is a way of connecting humans. At the end of the day, you really need to push, you know, it's this whole concept of edge. It's this whole concept of people-centered IT. The job really has changed dramatically mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to touch on too, we talked about this uh, you know, last week or so, but we talked about how people are buying things. And, you know, one interesting thing that I think about all the time as a consumer is how I buy things on Amazon, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So when I buy things, I look at all the reviews on Amazon and if it's got great reviews, but you know, it's not a super high quality item, like I'm going to trust the reviews, right? So from the perspective of Bridgepoint, when you're educating your strategists, you know, vicariously through to their customers. I mean, have you seen any difference in trends on how their customers are buying technology? I mean, do you think it's going to move to sort of a, you know, cause you can't buy a hundred CXs, right? How do you, <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you say like this technology is going to work from you? I mean, you know, do you go the anecdotal route like I do with, with Amazon or do you say, Hey, trust me, the strategist, because I've been in this, you know, like how has that changed? And like, has it, how has it changed over, over the span of your career? Well, I think there's never been a time where the, you know, we call them strategists, but you know, where, where the, the it consultant is more, has been more valuable, Mm. right? Because I think, if you if you ask, well, let me ask you. Let's let me. Can, you mind if I turn it around on sure. you for a minute? All right. I'm curious because I'm curious what you're going to answer. I'll give you my answer after I get yours. Okay. If your sellers and or the consultants and strategists who are representing you in the field were to ask their customers, the IT leader, what the number one challenge they have is. Is there a consistent answer you think that they get? Like, what do you think they would say? I don't know. I mean, today, I would say just from, you know, my limited experience at Evolve IP, but, you know, a lot of it, I would say, has to come along with the global issues that are happening. You know, where am I going to get my next laptop? Am I, am I secure enough? But what's interesting about am I secure enough is that question's always been there, which I think is interesting why tech, uh, security is so popular today. You know, uh, additionally, um, 
how do I get more out of my IT staff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How do I get them away from the keeping the lights on and pressing the lever or pressing the buttons, pulling the levers and get them, you know, thinking about more strategic initiatives, moving my company forward, you know, technologically. Um, I think those are some. Zach, I think you nailed it, but, but let me, let me, put a macro level punctuation point on what you just said. Everything that you just said basically implies that their number one problem is time. Mm. Right at the end of the day, think about that. Like, you know, how do I make people more secure? Yes, that requires time to be able to go put some time into that. At the end of that statement, you basically said, you know, how do I get people focused less on flipping levers and more on being strategic drivers for the business, right? Mm -hmm. That's an application stance. That's a training stance. That's a, you know, how do we get the most out of what we have going on and less babysitting stuff, mm. right? Um, so I think there's two things. One, the suppliers like yourselves are exceptional at doing babysitting jobs. And I'm not singling out of all IP. I mean, it, it could be any provider in any category, right? They chop the same wood with a sharp axe. You chop the same wood with a sharp axe every day, mm-hmm. right? If, but if, a, if an IT person who's doing 50 things needs to go and take care of their VMware Horizon environment because <laughs> they have DAS rolled out for remote workers, they did that once this week. And they're not very good at it, mm-hmm. Right. Your people are exceptional at it. All right. So that's the one thing. The second thing is the planning, consulting, buying, educating, learning who the vendors are, all that kind of stuff takes an immense amount of time. That's where the consultant comes in. That's where the strategist comes in. Right. So both what we do as a, you know, a distributor of you and what you do as a service provider to a customer. Both give the buyer back time, mm. the time to be able to be strategic in the way that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's, you know, what makes this marriage in this industry so super interesting, mm-hmm. right? You guys make stuff and run stuff so that you can take away those also jobs, right? We help them figure out how to map all the people who do that so that we can get all the also jobs off their plate. Mm-hmm. So that there is time to be strategic. The reality of it is the IT buyer doesn't have time to play Amazon with you, Mm. right? It's not like there's 47,000 business reviews on a, on a consumer based product, right? We have 8,000 customers, you know what I mean? On our end, you guys, I'm not sure what the number is now, but let's call it something like 12 or 15,000, whatever the number is, right? Um, There's no place to go to get that online review. We're the online review, Mm. right? We're the person helping them define what the suitability of a product is. If they had to go do it on their own, all they're doing is reading. Mm -hmm. And that's not valuable time. Valuable time for the CIO, I think in particular since the pandemic, Mm -hmm. is learning how to be a C-level executive. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of CIOs. Many of them are my friends. And I don't mean to say this in a bad way. Um, And I don't think that if they were honest with themselves, they would feel like I was saying this in a bad way. But most of them have the C because they're the highest level IT person in the company. Mm -hmm. But they're learning how to be a C-level executive post-pandemic. They got invited to the big kids table. Mm -hmm. right? Historically, the CIO, even though had a C, reported to the COO. Mm 
or sometimes the CFO. Do you know what I mean? Right. Wasn't engaging in direct conversations with the CEO about how the things that they're delivering are providing strategic value that drive towards cost savings or revenue generation mm -hmm. right at the end of the day. But now they are, you know, and they're learning those skills. We give them the time to do that. Mm -hmm. You give them the time to do that, right? We're just the different, you know, layers of the value chain to that. Mm -hmm. That to me, I think is where this all really breaks down. You can't buy this stuff. You can't buy a Volvo IP from Amazon. Right. Right. It's a much more of a prompted, designed, consulted sale, which requires somebody like us to help identify you as the right partner and you guys ultimately designing the solution that the customer is going to drive on a day to day basis. Yeah. And do you think that will remain to be the case? Um, you know, this IT consultant sort of model? I mean, obviously it's, it's, uh, it's working great now, but I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure the figures of, you know, how technology is bought in the market, you know, from a IT consultant standpoint. But I mean, I don't know if you, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd like to know if you, if you know, but like, do you think that's only going to grow, especially considering with what's going on with Amazon? I mean, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look at it this way. None of the industries that we as consultants are in have aged out of being sold by consultants. Mm. Do you get what I'm saying? So like, in other words, it, you know, this industry, our industry started around telecom and network, right? 40 years later, it's still the best way to buy it. <laughs> you know, like we never got as customers so good at it that we're like, ah, oh, screw it. I don't need that guy for that. That's easy. No, we're still, because the technology is changing. It's morphing, you know, Pardon me, we went from private lines to went from to frame relay to MPLS to SD WAN to SASE. Like even the most rudimentary thing that we do and the thing we've been doing the longest in tech through consultants has not aged out to the point where we're not valuable. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Typically something that requires help to buy that where the consultant isn't necessary gets to a point where it's so ubiquitous that you already understand it. Yep. And you buy it on your own. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why, I mean, in my mind, I think it's only getting, I think we're not at the golden age of the IT consultants, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't even think we're there yet is the reality of it because the demands on the, on the IT department are only getting larger. Mm -hmm. You know, think about it. Our footprint just spread from, you know, four offices to 4,000 mm. in a mid-sized company. Yep. The job didn't get smaller. It amplified by, you know, <laughs> by a thousand times mm. or several hundred times. So no, I think um, nobody figured out how to add any more hours to the day. So if we, if we go back to the, you know, the number one thing that we and you provide back is time, mm -hmm. then, then no, I don't think, I don't think this is going to be bought by Amazon. Another way for you to look at it is this Amazon, buy, Amazon has their own products that fall into our territory. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are plenty of do it yourselfers who go off and buy hyperscale themselves. But if that was so easy, would there be suppliers who focus around, you know, running and, you know, and building control planes around Amazon? Mm -hmm. Are there, would there be partners? And consultants who would be out there helping them optimize their spend on it, mm -hmm. you know, no, is the reality of it, right? Even Amazon can be bought 100% by Amazon, I think, <laughs> is the answer to the question. Right. 
So that's a bold statement that we're not even in the golden age of, I, I love that. And Hey man, it's a hot take. You can cut it out hey. and stick that in your little, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't mind saying it. I love it. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just so interesting how everything's evolving. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get your opinion on like how private equity has, you know, entered the realm of the channel. And I mean, with that being said, you know, from a, uh, from a strategist, from a consultant, from a supplier perspective, is private equity helping or is it hurting our chances of being, you know, of getting to that golden age? Well, I mean, I think it's helping, right? Because the re I mean, the biggest challenge that channel has historically had because of the way it grew up, right? It grew up with the, hey, I'm the guy, I'm solo guy, I can go get you three quotes for your telecom, right? Mm -hmm. Would never be considered in the same breath as Accenture, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And yet, I mean, we, we we're in competition with M1 deals all the time. Mm. Um, they may not yet consider us competition, right? I, I, I often say, I often say at our calls, like, you know, we'll feel really good that we've done what we did when somebody's really pissed off about us at some meeting at Pick Big Consultancy. I don't <laughs> want to pick one Accenture, pick me any of them, right? Um, that's what we know we've arrived when somebody slams the, you know, their fist down on the sale at the, in the sales meeting and say, how do we lose another deal to Bridgepoint and who are they? <laughs> um, but you know, I, the genesis of the industry, I think, you know, has, you, we, I think that we've largely outgrown, mm. you know, that, um, and I think that private equity, frankly, has had a lot. Not a lot to do with that because we were already well down the path of, you know, selling strategic services over the last decade plus. But I think when private equity is coming in and going, you know, put scale on this thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's allowing companies like us the, the time and the capital to be able to grow, to be a different style of consultancy. Mm. You know, maybe one that doesn't charge for so much because mm -hmm. because we're paid differently. Mm -hmm. You know, but provides a similar level of output. Mm. I guess it will remain to be seen. I mean, you know, it, it is it has been interesting. You know, as far as um, there has been new entrants into the the call it TSD world. You know, um, agents partnering and merging, merging with other agents and becoming call it super agents, I guess, if you want to call it. But I mean, when does it become, you know, when does it become like, I mean, do you, do you feel like it would become like an Amazon where so much private equity is put into, you know, pick a TSD, but then they start buying other large TSDs, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> like, do you think it could lead down that road? Um, look, I think every industry goes through waves of consolidation. Mm. Um, and yeah, sure. There'll be another one. I mean, you know, most private equity gets in is a mid-level investment tier. It does get in to do something with this investment. I mean, there are certainly private equity firms that look to operate for long, long periods of time, mm -hmm. but I think if it's done properly, you know, that is advantageous to the suppliers whom we represent. And I think it's advantageous to the customer and that's okay. You know what I mean? Could, could, let me say this. 
if they come in and then there's another round of consolidation and the people, the consolidators get consolidated, that's, <laughs> that's more for all intents and purposes what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have businesses that are of scale to disrupt the traditional consulting and distribution industries. Mm. And could they stand some disruption? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, that would bring competition at those levels, which only generally, you know, generally competition ignores to the benefit of the customer, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And this model has clearly been legitimized and held up now by private equity to be competitive to the consulting models that are out there. You know, the historical consulting models that are out there um, or IT services models that are out there, mm-hmm. the big companies. Um, and we're making it affordable for companies significantly smaller than where their target market is. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think it's beneficial if, if, and when there is another round of consolidation, both to the, both to the sellers and the suppliers, frankly, and as well as to the customer. Mm -hmm. So what's on the, um, what's next for Bridgepoint? I mean, you guys are obviously, uh, doing very well. You're very successful. The model obviously is working. Um, what is next, but also what do you think's gotten you to this point? I mean, what has been the difference in how you're enabling your strategist to be successful, to get you here? Yeah. Um, that's a good, so what's next? I mean, we're, we're going to continue making investments in um, growing our own business organically. There's mm-hmm. a huge plan around that, that, that I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, both around marketing and reach to be able to educate people on our model and also around capabilities and technology, right? More suppliers, more technology, you know, more uh, uh, technology and capabilities that to support our sellers uh, and strategists in the field, um, more resources to help them help customers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also going to continue making external investments. Um, you know, there are other organizations that are interesting to us, um, whether they be independent sellers who are looking to join the banner, mm-hmm. um, you know, and collect, you know, the smart people under our banner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also services businesses out there that we're interested in. You know, we've made investments in the CX and telecom and mobility expense management. I, I could see us making investments in, you know, other areas around uh, hyperscale management or security or you know, any one of those areas that we can expand that way. We would look at those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what has made us successful, I think, is that is that we have focused on the customer. Mm. I mean, this isn't a TSB model, which is a great model. When I make that statement, we don't perceive ourselves to be competitive, right? I mean, we to to a TSB, what we are is you know we are direct sellers. I mean, we 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 have direct customer relationships with Bridgepoint. Our sellers are Bridgepoint people. Our consultants are Bridgepoint people. This is a consulting firm. Mm. Um, what's helped us be successful is having it be about the outcomes. Right. We've got a lot of people here. Most of the people in this business are here to deliver directly to customers. Um, and to deliver suppliers like yourselves, you know, solutions directly to those customers. So we're going to continue to do that. I think we're at the forefront of, of there being a different way for businesses to buy IT and, you know, private equity legitimizing this as a path, um, a better path, frankly, in my mind towards, um, you know, managing, maintaining, and getting value out of an IT investment. Mm. Um, so we're going to keep doing what we're doing, keep making investments, and um, you know, keep driving it. But again, I think our success is really based around it being about the stuff we do, not just about 
you know, assisting distribution. It's, it's really about at the end of the day, what we're delivering to customers in terms of the engineers, in terms of the support people, in terms of the consulting services that we have under our umbrella. We're going to continue to expand that and make it about the tech and the people and directly delivering to customers. Love that. You know, um, obviously we're, uh, we could probably go on forever, but I wanted to start yeah. winding down. And one thing I like to ask all the time is like, you know, what, what is some advice that you would give to, you know, a younger Scott Kinka um, when he's first starting out in the channel or just any, any agent? I mean, you know, if you knew then what you knew now sort of question, you know what I mean? Well, you know, I think it's always been an approach that we, us, I have followed, but I think I, I, I've seen it work so much that it's become just sort of part of our lexicon, which is, you know, we say all the time, give without expectation of something in return. And of course, you know, on one hand, that's philosophical and, you know, spiritual and ethical and all those things. But on the other hand, I mean that in particular in the channel from a business perspective, mm-hmm. right? Evolve IP, as an example, was very, was served very well by just being willing to get out and educate, whether that was for and with us, uh, a, a TSB or whether that was out in front of customers, you know, that comes back to you. Being an expert doesn't mean only being an expert at the moment at which you're getting paid to be an expert, right? Mm-hmm. Being an expert is, means participating in the discourse and I think that partners and I think that companies, I think that suppliers should be willing to do that. I mean, so that's the advice. Looking back, I, I learned that. I had always, I think, been part of, because I enjoyed doing this that we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think over the course of my career, um, the value of this became clear and clear and clear to me, right? Which is, you know, it's that rising tide raises all ships. The smarter we all are by having the conversation, the better we can deliver for customers and the better we can deliver for customers, the better all of our bottom line is going to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that ROI is difficult to directly calculate, but be willing to spend the time and be willing to spend the money. Um, because when we're all better consumers of this stuff, the rest of it will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And is that advice similar to, you know, from a supplier standpoint, connecting with um, Bridgepoint strategists, for example, I mean, is the advice the same or is it, you know, 100%, you know, 100% give without expectation of, of anything in return. The, the, the strategist makes their decision on who to bring into their customer mm-hmm. based on who's going to deliver value to the customer. So you've got to demonstrate that value. There is an upfront investment towards getting it to the point where, you know, your businesses, you know, ma- mailbox money is hard to get to, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And part of that comes from, you know, demonstrating success over time. Um, and getting to the point where you can demonstrate success over time starts with getting to the point where somebody's willing to just give you the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes that opportunity is going to come from just being somebody who said, Hey, that was the guy who Zach was the guy who said this. I wrote that down. I made a mental note. I should call him for this. Mm-hmm. Participate in the dialogue, <laughs> you know, be part of the diet, you know, be part of the, uh, be part of the discussion. Yeah. And uh, I know you've got a pretty um, successful podcast of your own. I've watched a few of yeah. them. I think it's doing great. Do you have any um, exciting guests 
um, coming up in the near future? We do. Um, you know, we, and we've had a ton. Um, season two is well underway of the bridge with Scott Kinka. If you're, thank you for the, the shameless plug there, Zach. I don't Absolutely. mind going after it. Um, it's on Apple Pods, Spotify and YouTube. Um, as well as some of the other downstream uh, podcast platforms, The Bridge with Scott Kinka. It's a service at Bridgepoint Technologies. Um, we interview uh, C-level executives from technology suppliers. Um, it is focused towards the IT buyer, certainly valuable for partners as well. Mm -hmm. um, I just had Chris McFarlane on. Um, we haven't released the episode yet. He's the CEO of Comcast Business, wow. um, which was a really interesting uh, conversation to have because he was Macer G became part of Comcast. He and I have a shared history um, and, and being, you know, early people on the advisory council for Broadsoft. Um, that's a really great episode. I'm really looking forward to, but uh, you know, we've, we've managed to get great um, experts this year. I just had uh, this, we just released the episode with Swapnil Jane, who's the CEO of, of observe AI, which mm -hmm. you know, was a great conversation about AI from somebody. He was a, he was a, a developer, like a senior level, you know, architect at Twitter, Hmm. And was like, I'm done working for somebody else and I want to go start my own company and didn't even know what he was going to start. And it was like, did some research. It was like, AI, here it is. Um, and did it by sitting in contact centers in the Philippines and seeing how inefficient it was. So it was just a great, like a super cool story of, you know, start writing the business plan mm -hmm. and, and go for it. Um, mm -hmm. So you got a lot of those stories on the pod, uh, but really interesting. And I, I appreciate the plug and would love to have uh you know, people who got this far in this episode mm -hmm. of yours to, to come check out the bridge, be thrilled to have you as a listener. Absolutely. Yeah. And this may even be a two-parter. I mean, it, it could work out that way. We talked for an awful long time. Yeah. I'm nine minutes late for my next meeting. Uh, and I'm just told them to hold on because we're going to we're you know, we're, we have a great conversation going here and I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, all right, Scott. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We'll end it there. Yeah. And thanks everybody for uh, stopping by and catch us on the next one. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap on this episode of the Channel Champions podcast. You can find this and all our episodes on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite streaming platforms. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, guests, or topics, please reach out to us. We appreciate you coming along with us on this journey and hope you'll be back for the next episode. Until then, stay tuned, stay connected, and stay inspired.